Hello everyone, welcome back to the Post Millennials Talking Politics. We have a really exciting guest today, uh, a friend of the show, I, I would say. He's the Associate Editor of the Spectator of Quillette. He, uh, he recently founded a free speech union, which hopefully we can get onto at some point. And uh, most pertinently, you recently created the website, um, which is Lockdown Skeptics. So I suppose a good way to start this would just be asking, how is Britain dealing with coronavirus? Well, um, it's not dealing with it well, but I don't think it's dealing with it exceptionally badly. Um, I think that locking down the country, placing 66 million people under virtual house arrest has been a terrible mistake, but it's uh, not a mistake that the British government are alone in making. Um, I think that um, uh, Professor Neil Ferguson, who resigned quite recently after being yeah. caught with his pants down. Um, I think he played an instrumental role in persuading the British government to move from a mitigation strategy to a suppression strategy. Uh, and after the British government did that U-turn, a lot of other governments quickly followed suit. So I think Britain, and in particular, Neil Ferguson, do bear quite a large share of the responsibility for what I think of as a catastrophic policy blunder. Probably the worst peacetime policy mistake, I think, that's ever been made. But we can talk more about that. Yes. Well, on the subject of uh, Professor Neil Ferguson, I, I did want to see your reaction to that. Because this is the man who is essentially, as you said, behind locking up the Western world. And the fact that he isn't like even the, the man who made the lockdown isn't adhering to his policies seriously. There must be some, some significance to that. Well, it's hardly surprising that um, a liberal policymaker who proposes uh, draconian rules that the rest of us are supposed to live by um, flagrantly flouts those rules himself. Um, uh, he's hardly the first prominent liberal to be guilty of that. I don't think the most interesting aspect of this story is Professor Ferguson's double standards. I'm more interested in the politics of his mistress and what that tells us about his politics and what that tells us about the politics of the scientific experts who've been advising governments across the Western world. So, um, Antonia Statz, the 38-year-old mother of two, um, who has been traveling across London during lockdown to engage in trysts with um, Professor Lockdown, um, uh, turns out she, is, uh, she was a, an energetic um, uh, anti-Brexit campaigner, and she's also uh, an environmental activist. So uh, she supported uh, Greta Thunberg's uh, climate strike and there's a picture of her which is in most of the British papers um, uh, delivering um, a petition about uh, stopping the subsidies for fossil fuels to number 10 Downing Street uh, and then if you do a bit of um, trawling around in Professor Ferguson's history you can find evidence that he too is a fairly bug-eyed remainer he co-authored a paper in uh, 2006 um, oh, sorry, 2016, talking about how disastrous it would be if the UK left the EU. Uh, he sent a congratulatory email to 
Leila Moran, a Lib Dem who won the seat of Oxford West and Abingdon in the 2017 general election. So it's clear that his politics too are left of centre. Mm. Um, why is that relevant? Well, because if you, I mean, I think if you start with the assumption that the lockdown policy has been a catastrophic error, and we can get into that, but I can certainly make that case, I think, pretty persuasively. Um, then the question is, well, how did, it, how, how did we come to make this error? Why have so many governments taken this uh, catastrophic wrong turning in trying to deal with this global crisis? And I think it's, it's, it's absolutely typical of the hubris of liberal policymakers through the ages. Um, uh, you know, if you, you just chalk up uh, the things that have gone wrong, um, uh, governments across the world have wildly overestimated how much good they can do, how effective the programs they put in place are going to be at suppressing infections and fatalities. Um, they have completely underestimated the unintended consequences of placing their populations uh, under lockdown. Uh, we learned only yesterday, I think, that um, one of the unintended effects of lockdowns has been to um, uh, put on hold various TB programs across the world, which could likely result in the deaths of one and a half million people, the unnecessary deaths of 1.5 million people over the next five years. And that's just one story in a plethora of evidence that accumulates on an almost hourly basis that the cure is going to be much, much worse than the disease. Um, uh, you know, um, why do left-wing policymakers make these mistakes? Arrogance, I think. They never think for a second about the, uh, you know, about spending taxpayers' money, about racking up huge national debts. Um, uh, they always imagine that uh, just through the appliance of reason, um, they can bring about um, uh, these successful public programs, even though the empirical evidence is that those programs are catastrophic failures. Uh, they, they have no, no faith in the common sense of ordinary people. They think the only way to get them to avoid risky behavior is to threaten them with fines and imprisonment unless they conform mm. to these draconian rules, which of course don't apply to them. They're citizens of uh, anywhere rather than somewhere. The list goes on and on. We, we know this breed and Professor Ferguson is absolutely typical of this breed. And, I, and, I, you know, and so it's no surprise that his girlfriend should be a member of the same species, essentially a kind of died in the wool guardian Easter. Um, and I think it's just very revealing. And I think when we come to write the history of this terrible episode, uh, when we try and get to the bottom of why so many governments across the world have made this catastrophic error, which uh, we'll be paying the price for for years, decades to come. I mm. think the, the left-leaning sensibilities of the pangendrums, the public health pangendrums, who've been advising governments across the world, I think will be a large part of the explanation. Well, Britain has now surpassed all other European countries in terms of cases. And of course, at the early days of the pandemic, or in the early days of the pandemic, we had a very light lockdown. Indeed, Boris Johnson, it seemed, didn't want to apply this lockdown to the country until that Imperial College London study came out. If we had that lockdown sooner, then presumably we would be in a better case scenario currently. No, absolutely not. There's no evidence at all that lockdowns do anything to suppress infections or keep down death tolls. 
if you compare those US states that have locked down their populations to those that haven't, uh, the states that have locked down their populations haven't had fewer infections or fewer fatalities. Look at New York. New York locked down its population, didn't seem to ha have any positive effect. Uh, Florida, Florida has something like six deaths per 100,000, a fraction mm. of the number of deaths in New York, but Florida didn't lock down its citizens. There appears to be uh, no correlation between whether or not a country locked its citizens down and how severe the lockdown was and the number of infections and fatalities. Um, uh, the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine at Oxford University um, has done a detailed analysis of the rise and fall of infections and deaths and concluded that they were already falling. Infections were already falling uh, before Britain imposed its lockdown. Um, the more modest social distancing measures that were introduced on March 16th were having a positive effect. Um, you know, use of mass transit was down 40%. 35% of people uh, were staying at home, not going to restaurants, not going to sporting events. And we can see that these more modest programs in which you trust the citizens to respond in a kind of common sense way to the risk of getting infected are effective, uh, just as effective as locking down uh, populations, because in those countries that haven't locked down, like Sweden, uh, we see uh, no higher rates of infection or fatalities. Uh, so in Sweden, for instance, uh, under 3,000 people have died of COVID-19. Um, that's less than 10% of the total in the UK. And yet Sweden has a population which is about 15% that of the UK's. Uh, and we know the, the extraordinary cost that uh, we, we're already paying and will continue to pay uh, for this catastrophic policy. So um, tens of thousands of people um, who require critical hospital care, uh, but who aren't suffering from coronavirus, haven't been admitted to hospital. One cancer specialist thinks that the number of cancer patients alone who will die needlessly over the next five years because they haven't been able to go to hospital to get the treatment they need is, is in the region of 50,000. Really? Um, and we've seen, yeah, mental health um, uh, has deteriorated. Um, domestic violence has gone up. Um, uh, the, the effect on the economy of essentially mothballing um, uh, uh, our economy in this way is going to be absolutely catastrophic. Um, the uh, Office of Budget Responsibility and the Bank of England have estimated that GDP is going to shrink by 35% in the second quarter of the year in the UK. Um, another financial research organization has calculated that the cost um, of extra borrowing this year in the UK is going to be at least 100 billion. Um, and we know that uh, recessions cause a loss of life just as surely as deadly viruses. Um, mm. When people are thrown onto the dole queue and condemned to long-term unemployment, uh, their longevity tends to decrease. Suicide rates go up. Uh, and that's just ignoring the other numerous forms of suffering that uh, economic contractions cause short of loss of life. So I really do think that uh, far from Britain being better off if Boris had gone taken us into lockdown sooner, we'd actually be even worse off than we are at present, which is in pretty dire straits. Right. And look, I can give you another example of that as well. In Canada, something like 79% of all coronavirus deaths have taken place in long-term care homes. So, you know, really quite sick elderly people, and they're less than 1% of the population, and it's 79%, which I think is just astonishing. And it seems, of course, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. 
But if you were to apply the resources that we've had, or even a fraction of the cost of you know, what we've lost through the lockdown to just protecting these people, we'd be in a much, much better place. Yes. I mean, uh, the more we understand about how the virus is transmitted and who the most vulnerable people are, the less sense uh, quarantining healthy people uh, makes. Uh, so yeah. as you say, um, most deaths occur, most infections occur um, through uh, hospitals and care homes. Um, uh, they don't occur in outdoor sporting events. They don't occur on airplanes. Um, uh, they don't occur in schools. Uh, one of the interesting things that's um, emerged about children is not only are they almost completely invulnerable to COVID-19, uh, the vast majority of them uh, are asymptomatic and those that do get it only get very mild infections. In the UK, for instance, only uh, seven uh, people aged 19 and under have died from COVID-19 and three of them had underlying health conditions and only yeah. one child under 10 has succumbed to the virus and uh, they haven't found a single instance, not only in the UK, but anywhere else in the world of a child under 10 transmitting the virus to an adult. So closing primary schools, closing schools for younger children is just totally insane. It's just needless self-harm. Um, uh, and it's not surprising that um, across the world, countries uh, more enlightened than us are beginning to reopen schools. So in Denmark, for instance, and in Norway, schools have reopened. In Sweden, they never closed schools for children under the age of 16. Uh, it looks as though in the UK, we're not going to reopen secondary schools until September, if then. Um, and I think people underestimate the impact, the negative impact this can have on children's education. Um, but they won't be able to kind of um, have them redo the year that they'll have missed half of when they go back to school in September, because that'll create a kind of bottleneck effect uh, at one end. And it'll mean no students graduating to go to universities at the other. And Britain's 130 odd universities are in such a precarious financial state that if they were deprived of a generation of uh, paying customers, it would send at least half of them into a financial death spiral. Um, so uh, we're going to have to live with the fact that um, uh, a generation of children have this huge gap in their educations for no good reason whatsoever. Do you think, so of course Boris Johnson had a coronavirus. Do you think the reason why Britain doesn't yet have an adequate plan to get out of the lockdown and the fact that he continues to delay the lockdown is as a result of that? I think partly, yes. I think, uh, yeah, I think it was quite a close call. And I think he, he genuinely was out of action for about uh, between two and three weeks. Yeah. And because uh, he was out of action, it meant that um, the British cabinet uh, were unable to make any big decisions. They were unable to start putting an exit plan in place. Um, and so we seem to be between two and three weeks behind most other countries. So if you look around the world, most other countries have either announced how they're going to end their lockdowns or they've begun to end them. Um, we are now an extreme outlier in not yet having announced what our exit plan is. And it looks as though uh, something's going to be unveiled this Sunday, that they keep pushing it back. So we can't count on that. Uh, but it, it looks almost certain that uh, the headline will be that we're going to extend our lockdown for another three weeks. And when we come out of lockdown, it looks like we'll be social distancing uh, for years to come until a vaccine is developed, which of course, maybe never. Uh, they yeah. still haven't developed a vaccine to numerous deadly viruses, including HIV. They may 
they've worked out how to treat HIV and they may work out how to treat coronavirus. But if we've got to continue socially distancing uh, until there's a vaccine, I mean, that, that's condemning us to um, a, a terrible, terrible fate for years to come. Yes. Well, I would love to ask you about the free speech union. It seems like an eternity now, but a few months ago, I, I raised a profile sort of on it. And I wanted to know, well, have you been successful? Has the membership grown at all? Yeah, so it's, it has been successful. I've been surprised, actually, by um, uh, how it's really taken off. Um, so we launched in late February, um, mm -hmm. and uh, already it's got over 3,000 members. Uh, and we've been very busy uh, fighting on various fronts. Um, uh, incidentally, for anyone watching this who's interested in joining the Free Speech Union, the um, website address is freespeechunion.org. And um, if you want to join as an overseas member, it's extremely cheap. It's uh, less, I think, than three Canadian dollars a month. Um, so dirt cheap, a bargain. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, no, we've been fighting on numerous fronts, Nico. Um, we, uh, uh, two uh, prominent people were no platformed by Oxford University in yeah. the space of five days. So uh, professor of modern history, Selena Todd, was no platformed at a feminist conference because she's a gender critical feminist and the trans Taliban on the panel refused to appear alongside her. Uh, so instead of telling them to take a hike, the organizers of the conference uh, told um, Selena Todd to take a hike. Um, and then five days later, um, Amber Rudd, former Conservative MP and ex-Home Secretary, um, was due to speak at a UN uh, organized, an event organized by the, this UN women's group at Oxford. Uh, and she was canceled uh, less than half an hour before she was due to speak. She'd actually arrived at Oxford when uh, the news was broken to her that they'd canceled the event because protesters had objected. Um, and uh, so the Free Speech Union um, uh, went into action, wrote um, stiff letters, both to the rector of Exeter College, where the Selena Todno platforming took place, and to the university proctors who are responsible for enforcing compliance with some of the university's policies including the free speech policy wrote to them to complain about the no platform of amber rudd and we got letters back from both of them they took our complaints seriously they investigated them and in the case of the un oxford women's society uh, the proctors um, ordered them to apologize to amber rudd and then banned the society so that was quite a result um, and uh, Exeter College, meanwhile, is reviewing its own policies to try and make sure that nothing like the no platforming of Selena Todd ever happens again on its premises. But we've been involved in numerous other cases as well. Um, one, of the, one of the things uh, which is uh, really unfortunate, I think, about the present crisis is that um, free speech appears to be uh, in even greater jeopardy than it normally is with anyone expressing any dissent from COVID orthodoxy uh, facing uh, a ban from all kinds of platforms. So for instance, uh, the CEO of YouTube, I think you've run this story on the post-millennial, but the CEO of YouTube said a couple of weeks ago that anyone who dissented from the World Health Organization's analysis of how the virus spread and recommendations of how to mitigate the impact of the virus, uh, anyone expressing any dissent uh, from uh, the WHO official line would be kicked off YouTube. Now that's quite an undertaking because um, the WHO's line is constantly changing. So yeah. it initially echoed, faithfully echoed the Chinese authorities' line that there was no human to human transmission. Uh, then in February, it effusively praised the Chinese authorities for 
reacting in the way they had. And incidentally, their management of the crisis in January included testing entire populations uh, of vast regions of China, uh, imprisoning anyone who tested positive in special purpose built hospitals, whether they required hospital care or not, and literally boarding up in their homes anyone who tested negative to ensure that they had no contact with those who tested positive. It was an incredibly authoritarian response, which was only possible in a totalitarian society like China's. And yet the WHO praised this as a kind of model of how to manage the virus. But then literally a few weeks later, I think last week, a sort of senior WHO panjandrum gave a press conference in which he praised the reaction of the Swedish government to managing the coronavirus crisis. Uh, so they keep chopping and changing and, and, and you know, trying to, I mean, I, I feel a little bit sorry for whoever's tasked with kind of content moderation on YouTube, you know, YouTube's chief censor. They've got to kind of keep track of what the WHO's latest kind of uh, effusions are in order to make sure that everyone on YouTube doesn't dissent from them in any way. It's completely ridiculous. But one of the things the uh, FSU has done is um, the uh, broadcast regulator here in the UK called Ofcom reprimanded uh, a couple of broadcasters, including ITV, one of the largest national broadcasters. Uh, but, and, and in the case of ITV, um, a breakfast TV presenter called Eamon Holmes had said about theories linking coronavirus to 5G masts. He'd said, you know, these are completely crackpot. No one really takes them seriously. They're silly and stupid. But nonetheless, they should be discussed in the public square. Let's give people an opportunity to rebut them rather than try and just ban uh, uh, any discussion of this possibility in the public square. And merely for saying that, that that issue deserved a public airing, he was reprimanded by Ofcom. He said it was dangerous to say such things during this kind of national public health emergency. Completely absurd. So the uh, FSU has written a letter complaining to Ofcom and asking for assurances that they won't act in nearly such a censorious manner again. They've acknowledged that letter but haven't replied yet. But all sorts of things like that we've been up to. Yes. Well, why do you think cancel culture has reached such a fever pitch in this decade or, or at least 21st century? What exactly is contributing to it? I mean, the very fact that, you know, Amber Rudd, next Home Secretary, can be deplatformed by Oxford universities is just an extraordinary feat. And I don't think it would have happened um, in the 90s or 80s or 70s. So, so what has happened to our society? It's an interesting question. Um, uh, I think that, um, I think that, that at, at bottom what's going on is that um, uh, a kind of new species of intolerance has sprung up. Um, and it's a facet of, I think, the woke left, the, regret, the sort of resurgence of the regressive left, what um, Jordan Peterson calls uh, neo-Marxist postmodernism. Mm. Um, uh, their, their, their particular brand of left-wing politics is very aggressive and very intolerant of any dissent. And, that, and the growth of this new quasi-religion, and I think it does have many of the characteristics uh, that uh, other religions have, and I think it, to a, to a great extent, fills the whole left by the decline of organized religion in people's lives. And often if you look at the people um, who are most captured by this cult, and I think it is a cult, uh, they are people uh, from, from demographics that are um, the least religious and 
amongst whom religious worship has declined most dramatically in the past 25 uh, to 50 years. So I think it is, it is playing this religious role and that, that is part and parcel of the kind of Maoist climate of intolerance that seems to go hand in hand um, with this new uh, woke quasi-religion. Um, and it's, it's as though they're punishing blasphemers. They're punishing uh, anyone um, who uh, is um, a heretic or worst of all, an apostate, someone who was you know, a member of their tribe, but who now uh, wants to escape. They are the kind of, uh, they're, the, they're the most... Uh, uh, persecuted uh, enemies of all. Uh, and any, it, it's quite familiar to other kind of puritanical religious movements that have kind of infected uh, the West in the past. Um, you know, there's a, there's a real parallel, a golden thread linking the witch hunts in Salem, Massachusetts to the kind of cancel culture kind of uh, that uh, permeates social media. Um, and, and I think one of the reasons that uh, the woke cult seems to have really uh, only got a purchase in Anglosphere countries like the UK, like Canada, like the US, like Australia, like South Africa, is because they are Protestant countries rather than Catholic countries. In more Catholic countries, it hasn't got a grip. And it seems to just have a lot in common with these nonconformist Puritan religious movements, uh, which have generally kind of um, uh, thrived across the Anglosphere, but not so much outside the Anglosphere. So Henry, Henry VIII is really the person to blame for um, this uh, cancel culture. But I think it has got really quite bad in the past 15 years or so, uh, fueled by um, social media. Um, and I do think that uh, the uh, decline in the culture of dissent, the decline in tolerance for intellectual outliers, mavericks, dissenters, has contributed to this colossal policy mistake that seems to have taken place across the world. I think uh, people would have been more willing to challenge the public health experts who've been advising governments to lock their citizens down uh, if they were less fearful about the risk of being cancelled, of being no platform, of being publicly shamed. Uh, but because uh, uh, because um, the kind of uh, witch finder generals of the kind of progressive left have developed these very effective techniques for suppressing dissent, it means that we can make these kind of, uh, 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 we can rush into uh, these terrible policy decisions without any adequate scrutiny. And I hope that uh, in the aftermath of this crisis, during the post-mortem, um, the lack of free speech across, across, across the world uh, will be identified as one of the main reasons um, that uh, we found ourselves in such a mess. Uh, and you can see this in China, I mean, the most obvious example, had it not been for the fact that the doctors uh, raising the alarm in Wuhan, had it not been for the fact that they were arrested and imprisoned and then forced to sign confessions saying that they, they were making it all up and that actually there was no virus, they were just trying to frighten people, then we might have known about this virus a little earlier and it mm. could have been contained in much the same way that Ebola was contained and we wouldn't now have this kind of global crisis. Uh, so that's a really good example, I think, of uh, how if, there was, if free speech was valued a little more highly across the world, we wouldn't be in this mess. Yes, and it, it is extraordinary, the revulsion that is to dissent. Um, for instance, you wrote a column the other day, which essentially argued uh, what you argue today about the lockdown, and just the sheer chaos it caused on Twitter, almost needlessly, was remarkable. And it is stemming from these you know, university-educated, metropolitan, 
liberals. And, uh, and that sort of leads me to my next question, and I'm sort of, you know, moving back to the lockdown. You're arguing for an end to the lockdown, yet the general public, it appears in polls at least, uh, do not want it to end. And if it did, they wouldn't go back to schools or they wouldn't go back to their work and they would continue to socially distance. Um, whose fault is that? You know, yeah. is it the media to blame? That's been a shock. I think there was a, there's been an international survey done by this uh, statistical research unit at Cambridge. Uh, and the results I think were published, um, published today, mm -hmm. um, showing that Britons are more fearful um, uh, uh, of catching the virus than any other people in the world. And if you look at the opinion polling, as you just said, uh, it's extraordinary how many people are, you know, zealous enthusiasts for the lockdown. I think uh, a couple of weeks ago, something like half the people in the country thought the lockdown hadn't gone far enough and that there literally ought to be policemen standing outside our houses preventing yeah. us from, you know, going out to pick up a pint of milk. Um, it was, you know, it's extraordinary how enthusiastic the British people have been to, uh, uh, been about the kind of removal of their historic liberties dating back to Magna Carta and the Bill of Rights. You know, we imagined that we were this kind of, you know, nation of freeborn Englishmen, fiercely protective of these ancient liberties. It turns out, not at all. Uh, more than happy to jettison them if, there's, uh, if we think it's going to make us that little bit safer from catching um, this virus. I mean, it, it has been really disappointing for someone like me who believes in the myth of you know the english as an unconquerable people who haven't been invaded since 1066 you know and who never would have succumbed to the boot of nazi oppression you know it's begun to make me sort of slightly reevaluate. i mean they've had protests across germany uh, about the lockdown we haven't had almost a single protest here you know uh, i always thought the germans were kind of you know rule kind of uh, you know um uh, rule followers, um, uh, uh, cravenly kind of uh, uh, worshipping authority. But it turns out that's us, not the Germans. Um, uh, why is it? Well, I think it's partly because um, the government's uh, propaganda campaign has been very effective. It's got this kind of uh, this slogan, which mm. is um, stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. And the fact that the NHS is kind of front and center of this public campaign plays to the kind of national sentimentality bordering on almost a form of insanity in the kind of public worship of the National Health Service. Um, uh, as somebody said, it's the closest we come now to a national religion. Um, and uh, and every, every Thursday evening at 8 p.m., every person in Britain is expected to, it's the only time they're, they're, ever, they're actually allowed to leave their houses, they're expected <laughs> to kind of appear on their doorsteps and applaud uh, the, the glorious and heroic staff of the NHS. Um, and God, you know, you, God help you if, uh, if you're not there, uh, clapping enthusiastically every Thursday at 8pm. Um, I think it's, uh, it's partly because the government's uh, propaganda campaign has been effective. I think it's also because the mainstream media have been um, just an echo chamber during this crisis. Um, there's been very little dissent. Uh, from the lockdown policy. Almost all the criticism of the government has been that they didn't lock down soon enough, not locking down at all. No one's complaining about that, apart from me and a handful of others. Um, and as you say, when we do kind of pipe up and say, you, sh 
school, this is the best policy, very little evidence that it's effective, blah, blah, blah. Uh, people jump down our necks, accuse us of endangering lives, think we're being irresponsible, become really genuinely angry. You know, we think, they think that anyone who expresses the slightest bit of dissent uh, from the kind of COVID orthodoxy is actually going to end up killing people. I mean, it's just bizarre. Um, I th also think that uh, it's to do with the kind of uh, culture of health and safety, which uh, has been so prevalent um, in Britain, particularly in the public sector over mm. the past 25 years or so. I think, you know, uh, we're a kind of nation of emasculated kind of girly men, um, men without chests, I think, as C.S. Lewis uh, put it. Um, uh, so, you know, there's a lot going on, but the supine acquiescence of uh, the British people to uh, essentially being placed under house arrest. And they're kind of crying out to be kept imprisoned for even longer has been, you know, shocking to me. Yes. Well, last question, and I'm afraid it's a bit self-indulgent, but uh, I write for an American magazine sometimes, and I'm always really interested to see how it sort of punctures the debates in Canada. And I think it is due to the fact it's American. And Canadians are always very interested to, uh, to know what foreigners think about, you know, their leaders and their politics. So what do you think about Justin Trudeau's leadership, sort of this progressive prince and so on, and the leader of globalisation now, it seems, alongside Macron? Yeah, I'm, I'm, well, it won't surprise you to learn that I'm not a huge fan of uh, Justin Trudeau's. Um, mm. I was amused to see that, um, like uh, Professor Neil Ferguson, um, it was one rule for the masses and another rule for him. And that actually he visited what some relatives um, uh, ski lodge or whatever it was um, uh, yes. a couple of weeks. Cottage ago. in Quebec. Cottage in, in, in Quebec, yes. Um, uh, and um, there was the whole kind of blackface uh, stuff, which was also very entertaining. But I think he's absolutely typical of the same species that Neil Ferguson is a member of. You know, they believe in big government. They have this kind of uh, extraordinary faith in um, the ability of uh, uh, governments um, to do good. Um, and they ignore things like uh, the inability, the lack of capacity of public state organizations to enact uh, the policies they devise. They overlook the unintended consequences of those policies. They don't worry about the cost of those policies. They have this incredibly condescending, uh, patronizing attitude to ordinary people. Anyone challenges them, they think they're either stupid or evil. You know, it's the same story we see across the world. And you see these people um, trying to uh, uh, leverage the coronavirus crisis into uh, transferring even more power from national parliaments to unelected international organizations like the WHO and the UN and the IMF and the EU and so on and so forth, mm -hmm. uh, as if these organizations have done a bang up job of managing this pandemic. And it's only, you know, national governments that have kind of let, let the side down when actually the, you know, almost the exact opposite is true. The EU has emerged from this crisis as a completely hopeless organization with no strategic vision, no capacity for mm -hmm. managing a public emergency like this at all. And the same could be said of the WHO, which I, which I, I sincerely hope um, uh, 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 goes bankrupt um, uh, after what's happened, after it's kind of appalling uh, uh, errors of judgment, one after another during this particular crisis. And it's kind of craven sucking up 
to the Chinese communist authorities. Uh, but no doubt um, I'm wrong about that and that, uh, the, the, that um, the left will find a way to tell a story about this crisis which ends up uh, empowering, empowering them and the various international organizations that they like to retire to on vast pensions, uh, empowering them even more. Yes, well, Toby, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's been a huge pleasure. No, pleasure was mine.